Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about the precious value of human connectedness. My first guest is Rob Lawless. I have the great fortune of connecting with Rob Lawless because he's a man on a mission. I saw a little news clip on Rob several months ago, and the one good thing or one of many silver linings to come out of our social situation is that his life has slowed down and he's been able to go through a thousand emails and find mine <laughs> requesting that he come on the show. So Rob Lawless wants to spend one hour, one-on-one, with 10,000 different people to learn about their lives and see what comes of opening doors for no particular reason. Since starting his project in November of 2015, Rob has met over 3,200 people in more than 20 cities across the United States and Canada. And he's been covered by actually quite a bit of press, which is how we came to know Rob, um, including Kelly Clarkson, Now This, Ryan Seacrest, and the New York Post, and more. And I have the great pleasure of getting to hang out for a little bit with Rob Lawless. Hey, Rob, how's it going? Hey, Lisa. It is good. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, my goodness. I am super excited to have you because not only am I enamored by your project, Rob's 10,000 Friends, I'm also curious about how our current social climate is affecting the project. And I want to know everything about the project because it's so cool. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So I guess I'll start. I'll just give you a little bit of background on it. And then I'll talk about the how it's being affected right now. But essentially, I started this project in November of 2015. So almost five years ago, And it was born out of a desire to get to know the people around me. I had graduated in 2013 with a finance degree from Penn State. And I was really involved in clubs and activities there. So I had this largely organically grown network that brought me, like you said, like a lot of happiness. And when I went to work for Deloitte Consulting after school, it felt like that network was taken away from me a bit. I wasn't running into people on the streets that I knew anymore I was tied up in an office for 10, 12 hours a day. And I just kind of sought that connection again. And I had minored in entrepreneurship and I had always wanted to start my own path in life. And so after leaving Deloitte and moving into the Philadelphia, into the actual city for a tech sales job, I decided to start this as my own project too. And then in July of 2016, after that company was bought out, I was laid off and decided to take this full time. So this has been my life for the last pretty much like the last five years has been the the sole focus of my life. And it's been awesome. And every day I'm going out and meeting four new people 
in all different parts of the, right now I'm in Hoboken in the New York City area. And then today is Thursday, March 19th. And last Wednesday, actually, I made a post that I was going to put the project on pause. And for the last week, I've been thinking to myself, how do I keep people engaged? Because, you know, the coronavirus thing, it started out as, okay, we're going to have to be social distancing for two weeks. And then it's like eight weeks. And then they said, okay, it might last through July or August. And so each of those announcements brought like a a deeper level of uh, kind of anxiety for me of figuring out what to do for the project. And just yesterday, I made the decision to to start going virtually with it for a couple of reasons. And I think I really missed that that sense of connection. I think that it was adding so much to my mental health that I really felt it negatively affecting me during this time of isolation. And two, like, I think people are yearning to see that we can still be connected in this time. And when I put out that message, I got over 200 responses of people from all over the world wanting to, to connect and be part of it. And so I don't know. I think there, for me, like there might be some perspective that I gain from meeting people virtually. Cause I've always said when you meet people virtually, you miss out on the body language and the vibe and whatnot and the energy. But maybe this is a way for more of us to be inspired to connect with people and to see that in this day and age, it really is so easy as to just send someone a link and hop on your computer or your phone. So that's kind of where we're at right now. I'm planning to start the virtual meetings probably on Saturday and doing them in, until until we're all allowed to be outside with each other again. And, and then I'll pull back and go back into in person. But for all of us, as you said, it's a crazy times times to create and invent new ways of doing things. So let me ask you a couple of questions about how you do this. Your uh, project is very, very simple in that you agree to spend an hour of really high quality time with another individual to learn about their world. That's it, right? Yeah, there's there's no agenda. I, can, I mean, a good way to think about it is for, for me, when I was in college, I was becoming friends with people and having these really fulfilling relationships with them because we just happened to be in the same club or activity or we just happened to sit next to each other in class or they were a friend of a friend. And, and I felt like the ability to meet people without an agenda was taken away from me after college because, and I think all adults kind of feel this way that they either graduate or if they graduate from high school and go right into the working world, they feel that people have their groups of friends set in stone and no one's looking to make new friends. But I think in reality, everyone is looking for more, more connections and social interactions. And I wanted to get back to a place where I could sit down with someone and it not be a date or a business meeting, but just me telling them about myself and me learning about them. And then being able to see them on a later date as a friend, as opposed to a stranger. I like what you just said. And I also like what you spoke of before we started the interview talking about the decision whether to go home to your folks, mm. which I think the natural tendency in times of crisis is to want to go home to family and realizing, well, if you go home, perhaps you place your folks at risk. I mean, we have the same situation going on in, in our family with my own kids. Right. And then sort of the adulting that has to go on it's a first big decision. Like there's a sort of a, a global crisis and how are you going to respond to it? 
and you are sticking to your passion, to what makes you feel most alive. And I think that's a fantastic way of managing, actually. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, like I said, I, I tried to fight it. And then, I don't know, after making the decision and seeing that people are yearning for that connection, like after making the decision, you look back and you're like, why did I ever question even not wanting to do this virtually for the time being? And so, yeah, I'm excited. And like I said, I, I think me as an individual, I, I need that connection to move forward because I don't have a nine to five job where I'm just working from home now. It's like all of my productivity was my time is all taken up by meeting people, writing their stories, communicating with them to set up times to meet. And pretty much all of that was taken away. So it was like, I didn't know how to occupy myself and was going especially crazy. But now I'm able to have all of those things again. And your sphere has expanded exponentially. I mean, now it's no longer the um, the person in your neighborhood where you happen to be living or staying. But you mentioned that you have people in Iran, in Italy, people who have really been impacted ahead of our curve by what's going on. And for them to be able to tell their stories to you, I think is magical. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And I, I was fortunate to meet a lot of international people for, for the project, especially when I got to the New York City area, but definitely was limited to have it be a common occurrence. So I'm excited to, yeah, just to chat with them and see, hey, how's everything going on your end? I'm sure that it'll see, we'll see a lot of similarities of people in those countries doing the same things like, oh, I'm probably spending more time on Instagram or <laughs> on my phone or I'm, I'm chatting with my friends. We're trying to decide what Netflix series to watch. And so it, it'll be cool. Like, like we were talking before that this everyone is kind of going through this together. And so, yeah, it's an equalizer. Actually, it's we were talking about this last night around our dinner table that this is an agnostic issue, right? Like it, it doesn't know color. It doesn't know socioeconomic background. It doesn't know religion. It really doesn't care. Agreed. Yeah. It's, it's looking for a good host. <laughs> right. That's true. Yeah. I think you, I mean, I personally do feel connected to everyone. I mean, Oh, me too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that, otherwise we couldn't do what we do. You and I. Right. For sure. And I think even like, yeah, it's so easy to be so, so similarly connected at this time where you and I could hop on this call and within three minutes talk about like the kids going back to the parents and how we're both in the same situation. So yeah, I think right now people are more similar than ever maybe in, in what they're doing and how they're spending their time. And the importance of connection for mental health. I mean, let's, let's, you know, go back to that for a moment because on the one hand, one can say, well, all I need is, you know, my immediate family or whoever I'm living with, and I'm just going to hunker down. I'm going to ride this thing out. But that, you know, could be a recipe for emotional disaster if, if it's not well balanced. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm extremely extroverted in the sense that I need that human interaction. And I think everyone does. And I think everyone just needs someone to relate to. And I think you get a lot of that relatability through connecting with the people around you. And outside of the, the context of the coronavirus, I can speak to how that's positively impacted me because I've met people in Philadelphia that I've run into in Los Angeles. And I've met people in Los Angeles that I've randomly run into in New York City. 
And like I met a pilot from Norway in LA and then he and I reconnected during one of his layovers in New York City. And so for me, after putting myself out there and meeting with so many people, I now have this just network that I'm able to casually interact with. And I always say that makes the world feel a lot more like home. And to me, the, the feeling of home is you're in your neighborhood and you see that familiar face who it's the kid who grew up down the street from you for 20 years, or it's like your, your neighbor who your parents were friends with. And being able to see those people, I think, brings a certain feeling to me. And I've been able to create more of that feeling by going out and making more personal connections. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to continue the conversation with my guest, Rob Lawless. To learn more about Rob's work, please visit www.robs10kfriends.com. On Twitter, Rob is at Robs10kfriends. Facebook and Instagram, same handles. Rob, I'm so glad that we get to be friends, even from a distance. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Here comes the pause, but before we do, I want to mention that around here, we advocate for emotional fitness every day. Did you know that May is officially Mental Health Awareness Month? We humans love feeling like life is under control, but right now, life is feeling pretty uncertain. People are anxious, our daily routines have been disrupted, and future plans are in flux. And while we're all doing whatever we can to care for our physical health, we must also invest in our mental health. When stuck at home, it doesn't always feel easy to get up, get dressed, and do the things we know that will make us feel better. My go-to self-care includes exercise, connecting with friends and family, and deep cleaning my house. Most importantly, I also take the time to speak with a therapist to help bolster my emotional well-being so I can continue to effectively serve others in maintaining theirs. We all need a little accountability and extra support, especially right now in unusual times like these. And that's why I'm proud to be partnered with Talkspace Online Therapy. In honor of Mental Health Month, Talkspace Online Therapy is committed to fostering a global community focused on the importance of mental health. While we might not be able to shake hands, high five, hug, or gather in person for solidarity, we can and should reach out for support. Talkspace is an interactive platform that provides a virtual space to talk it out with a licensed therapist from the comfort and privacy of your home, whenever and whatever is on your mind. The bottom line, you deserve support and don't have to struggle on your own. Your Talkspace therapist can be your dedicated support system, there to help you feel healthier and more empowered, even in these uncertain circumstances. As a listener of this podcast, you can get $100 off your first month on Talkspace. To match with your perfect therapist, go to Talkspace.com or download the app. Make sure to use the code HAPPINESS to get $100 off your first month and show support for the show. That's HAPPINESS and Talkspace.com. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, we are tapping into the precious value of human connectedness with Rob Lawless. Let's return back to the conversation. 
I'm talking with my new friend, Rob Lawless. He is a man on a mission to spend one hour one-on-one with 10,000 different people to learn about their lives. His project is Rob's 10K Friends. And Rob has started this project after school when he first stepped into the professional world and then stepped out of it into entrepreneurship and took on this great social experiment, which Rob, I am, I'm delighted by you. I have to say that, you know, thank you. I appreciate that. Like this project uh, puts a smile on my face that it, it, it not only because of what the world is going through, but because I know that this is the secret sauce to our happiness. Agreed. I appreciate you for seeing the value in it. I think it takes a certain person who appreciates human connection t- to see a project like this and, and think, highly of it. I, I've found that some of us, we just, we really do value it and, and feel the importance of it in our lives. Well, the research, the scientific research says, you know, I can't emphasize enough how important these good social relationships are. And I think your project definitely validates this. Tell us a few of your favorite stories. Sure. So I, it's funny because I've actually, in the earlier part of the week was was sharing some stories that I found inspirational from my project. But there was, and for me, my favorites tend to be ones that give me a lot of perspective on life. And as a quick background, I'm the youngest of three. I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. All three of us went to Penn State. My parents are still married, still together and healthy. And so I grew up in a really loving environment. And I have just met people who didn't have as easy paths as me throughout life in different ways. And one of them, I met this woman, Roz, who at the time that I met her, she was hosting a homeless man who was coming out of a surgery so that he could recover. And she told me about her life. She grew up in the Kensington area of Philadelphia. And when she was 16, her ex-boyfriend found out that she was dating someone new and he tried to kill her. And he, he didn't succeed, but he went around the corner and found her current boyfriend and murdered him. And then when she was in her early 20s, her twin sister committed suicide and she lost her younger brother to homicide in 2012 while he was trying to protect his nephew. And so for me, I remember hearing her story and talking with her and thinking any one of those three things would bring me down as a person. But she has been through three very traumatic events and has come out on the other side. And she has a project called Operation Save Our City in Philadelphia, where she advocates for the families of victims of homicide. And essentially, sometimes it's like trying to get the the suspects, the people responsible for it to turn themselves in. And so I have just looked at her as an inspiration for taking really bad things that have happened in her life and turning it into something that she finds purpose in. So that that's the the first one. And then there is another guy that I always talk about. His name is Chris, and he was the 1300th person that I met. And he was a hotel concierge in Philly. And I remember when I walked up to meet him, I had assumed that he grew up in in the Philly suburbs like me. Uh, But when he spoke, he had an accent. And I learned that he was half German, half South African. And he was raised in Nigeria. But when he was 16, he was living in Romania. He came over to New York City to go boating on the Hudson River with some friends, and he ended up falling off of the boat and getting run over by it, and his legs got sucked up into the engines. <gasps> and yeah, he described it to me as if his legs were put in a blender 
um, like muscle was chopped off of the bone and stuff. He lost five of six liters of blood, technically died on the way to the hospital and was brought back to life. And they gave him a 12% chance of ever walking again and a 15% chance of living. And he beat both those odds. And I mean, he showed me like his one leg, like they had to cut the bottom of the calf, uh, muscle and fold half of it up so that he at least had an upper calf. Uh, but yeah, I, I think about that a lot. And again, how traumatic of an experience that that would be. And I mean, to even relate it back today, it's like a lot of us are struggling with being inside all the time and not being able to go out and, and having to do the whole social distancing thing. But I would take social distancing over my legs getting sucked up into the engines of a boat any day. Wow. Hearing, hearing the stories of both Rob and Chris, I think you said was the. Oh, Roz is the first. Uh, Roz, is, Roz is the gal and Chris is, is the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this, the stories of Roz and Chris. And when you think about the resiliency of, of their spirit to overcome these challenges. And what I find so interesting is you being attracted to their stories because they are in such contrast to your own. Yes. Yeah, I think they especially stick with me because of that. And I've always been that way too. And I think like I know my backstory. And for me to hear a bunch of stories that are just like my own, while I don't think that's a bad thing, because I think connection in general is good. I'm always, my interest is always peak in the ones that are so different from me, because they are the ones that expand my mind and expand my perspective and like help me understand what the world looks like through a lens outside of my own. Which I think is mandatory, especially today. Yes, I think it's, I agree with that. And I think some people get caught up in their own past and they start to think about the world as it relates to them. But I, I found that if you are able to think about the world, world as it relates to everyone else, then it's much easier to go through it and to kind of keep yourself in check. And, you know, there's another element to this project that I think is really exquisite, and that is the need for us to tell our stories. Like when we really feel seen and heard and understood by someone else, and I don't think it really has to be somebody we know well, a, a stranger can give us that intimate gift. And when we receive that gift, whew, it feels amazing. Yeah, that's um I think something that I don't often reflect on is maybe how much people are getting out of this project from the simple act of having someone listen to and care for their story. And for me, like one of the things that I love seeing is when I write about someone uh, after the fact, and then someone who didn't know about my project, who's a friend of theirs will comment and be like, wow, you captured them so perfectly in this post. How did you do that? And yeah, I, I'm fortunate because it is an interest of mine, but it does feel good to be able to give people that time and attention and make them feel like they, they are important because I hear it all the time. Like everyone does have a story and sometimes there aren't listening ears available to hear them. And so sometimes it feels like people come to me with a cup that's overflowing. And as soon as they get to me, they start spilling everything out and they're just looking for someone to listen. So. I hope that is something that I can continue to do. And, and like we were talking about earlier, maybe help other people go out and do in their own life too, because there's clearly 
more demand for it than just one guy meeting 10,000 people. So I think it's something that we can all practice. Oh, I agree. Many years ago, I was part of a project called The Listening Post, and it was a community-based project where we trained a bunch of lay people in the art of listening, heartfelt listening, to really sit with somebody so they could tell their story, they could unburden themselves. It wasn't therapy, wasn't coaching, it was just listening. And that idea of when you can make eye contact with someone, and this is what one of the things I would think putting myself in your shoes would be difficult about going to this virtual environment for the short term, right? It's that you said the vibe, you know, being in their orbit, that where you make that connection, where your eyes lock, that mm. you really see the humanity and experience th that of the other. I agree. I, I love that that part of it and the energy. And I'll be interested to see if that comes through at all. And yeah, talking about the eyes locking, I'm just thinking of us talking through video chat. And I mean, half the time you're looking at your own little circle to make sure that like your background is okay. And the other time you're looking at them, but they can't tell that you're looking at them directly. So we'll see if, if that's something that's able to come through. And I've also loved too just how spontaneous the in-person meetings with people are. Like I've had times where <laughs> third parties interject themselves into the conversation and like whatever you were talking about, gets completely derailed and you just have to flow with it and, and roll with it. But I am excited to see how this new format goes and what I, I like about it and what I don't like about it. I'm excited to offer it as something that other people can do as well. Well, come back and, and give us an update. Seriously. Because I feel like I, that to, in order to be one of Rob's 10K friends, I have to have a full hour and I've only had about half an hour. <laughs> Right. Yeah, we'll have, to, we'll have to sit down together sometime. No, oh, I would love that. We're not that we're not that far apart. So we will let's make a plan to do that. Maybe after you've um had done some of these two hundred uh connections that are waiting for you to learn more about Rob Lawless and his project, please go to Rob's ten K dot com on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's so convenient. Rob's ten K friends. Rob Thank you from the fullness of my heart for taking some time and, and hanging out with me. I really wanted to meet you and I'm so glad I did. Likewise, I appreciate you giving me something to look forward to today and just being able to talk to someone and interact like I was doing when the world was in its everyday routine has been really good for me. So thank you for just having me on the show and sharing about my project. And yeah, thank you for the, the personal experience today. Ah. Well, really, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks for the gift. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about the precious value of human connectedness. My next guest is Aliza Klein. I want to mention that an update to my original interview with Aliza Klein that took place prior to the COVID-19 crisis, I want to add that One Table is now hosting virtual dinners called Shabbat 
alone together. And I encourage our listeners of any faith to join one of these amazingly friendly and inspirational dinners with friends from around the world. Make new friends, get connected. If you're feeling alone and separated, this is one way to reconnect with humanity in a safe and lovely way. So once again, um, that is Shabbat alone together at one table. My guest today has started an organization that I found so interesting. It's kind of social media. It's definitely social interaction. And we're talking about OneTable.org. My guest today is Aliza Klein. She is a dynamic leader and social entrepreneur. Aliza was also the founding executive director of, I'm going to mess it up, Aliza, so help me out here, (laughs) Mayim Chaim. <laughs> community. That's perfect. Absolutely. It's a community mikvah art gallery and healing center in the Boston area. And a mikvah, for those of you who don't know, is a sacred ritualistic space where women and men will go to of the Jewish faith will go to bathe. Exactly. It's a it's a full body immersion. It's like a deep sort of like a hot tub, but not quite so hot. It's a big enough for a, a person to immerse, to kind of sink into the water. And it's really about marking a transition in your life from, you know, maybe before you're getting married, maybe at the dissolution of a marriage, maybe when you're ready to have a different kind of intimate relationship with your partner, uh, maybe after a major weight loss, maybe um, after learning about some terrible news or some joyous news, when there's a significant change in your life and you're just really hungry for a ritual to mark that, um, that's what this ritual bath really was created for. And, and and I think it's important to talk about the sacredness of the mikvah, although this show is not about that. We probably could talk about sacred spaces at, at another, another time. time. <laughs> but um, the idea is this is all centers around community and supporting one another as we cross these milestones in our lives. I would say that's absolutely right. It's also about searching for our most ancient traditions and being grounded in them at times. Like what is the wisdom that has been passed down from the ages? And I find that much of what I have learned about ancient ritual is that oftentimes it was very intelligent. It was really an understanding of what humans needed. Life passes by so quickly. And if we don't slow ourselves down with some ritual to make the moment sacred and purposeful and mindful, uh, then it goes by. And many of us can't create that on our own. We need to be rooted in something that existed before us. It gives a a sense of humility um, that we get to do something that's been part of of a heritage. Um, mikvah is actually also the ritual specifically that you use when you enter the Jewish faith. So the first thing that you do to become a Jew, if that's your path, is actually to do this full body ritual. And I just kind of love connection of the body and the sense of being present and the ancient ritual and the very contemporary meaning of it. I also want to mention, Eliza, that you are a trained coach and design thinking facilitator. And I am a huge fan of design thinking. I had the great fortune of doing some work with IDEO a few years ago, Mm. and I'm a convert. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I exactly. I I say that I converted to design thinking. That's funny. Yes, yes, yes. Let's talk about what design thinking is and relate it to the creation of one table, because one table is a solution. That is very much uh, in the in the vein of design thinking. A hundred percent. We learned that there were um, a couple of overwhelming trends that were facing specifically um, young adults uh, in 
the, the way that, that OneTable was founded in partnership between some philanthropies and myself. And the idea was, where are there real gaps in the community? And also, where are people kind of suffering and how might we solve for that? So we learned that there were two trends. One was that Loneliness is an epidemic and was disproportionately affecting millennials, which is the generation born between 81 and 96. And now we're learning also Generation Z, which is those born right after that. Um, So they are, you know, anywhere from their late teens now to their late 30s. We specifically were focusing on this population just to narrow the focus of people who are no longer in college, not yet necessarily having kids. So mostly 20s and 30s. So that was one thing as we found that they were expressing higher, high levels of uh, social isolation and disconnection and loneliness, um, higher than at any other time in history. And also there was a Pew study about young adults and religion. And we learned that like for Judaism and other religions, the rate of people who were completely disassociating from um, any kind of religious community was also at its highest point in history. It didn't mean we learned that people were not looking for spiritual or connection, they just were not going through traditional channels anymore. So the question was, how might we create an opportunity for uh, people at this stage of life to actually find connection, meaning both, you know, for themselves, for each other, and give them the agency so that they could create opportunities of connection for each other. That was really like the very broad design question that we asked. And the solution uh, is yeah. one table, which is, I think, a cross between an Airbnb for dinner and a social media platform, right? So anywhere in the world, essentially, or hopefully the, the idea is to be anywhere in the world, one can find connection on a Friday night with other like-minded people with shared interests. That's exactly right. We took the ancient, so going back to where we started in terms of ancient ritual, we took this ancient ritual of the Sabbath of Shabbat in Hebrew, which is at the end of the sixth night of the week, where you can look back on the week that was and just exhale. Work week is over, the weekend is coming. And if you chart out one's loneliness in the week, that could be a high point. So instead, we also wanted to reframe it and have it be a high point for personal, interpersonal connection. So there happens to already be this ritual that is about slowing down and enjoying the company of others and eating a home-cooked meal. And how might we take all of those rituals and actually make them accessible? Because what we found is, And this is very common for other design challenges, right? Like why don't people exercise or sleep as much as they should or um, eat healthily? Like things that we know would make us healthier and happier. So there's a barrier that gets in the way. And the design challenge became how do we understand what those barriers are and then get around them? And you're right. One table became the solution. We found that we could use technology not to keep people apart, but actually bring them together so that it could be as easy as swiping right to find a group of other people like you to have dinner with in an intimate setting. And this doesn't hold true for just millennials and Gen Zers. You know, I was sharing with you before we started the show that I have a neighborhood friend who's 91 who was telling me that she started going to therapy because one of the things she feels is this profound sense of loss, not only of some of her faculties and the death of all of her friends, but she feels so desperately lonely. Yeah. The data shows that we are more connected to each other 
through media and technology than we ever have been, right? I have, I'm in touch with friends all over the world that I wouldn't normally be connected with, but that does not mean that I have the kind of the know-how to actually have dinner with people. It seems one of the things that was very surprising to us was that 57% now of Americans eat alone most of the time. Wow. Right. That's alarming. We also learn at the same time that if you share a meal, you can actually forge stronger connections with others and not just sharing a meal like you order yours and I order mine, but actually eating in a family style way actually can forge stronger relationships. There were, so what it, you know, that meant for us, well, perhaps we should offer cooking classes. Perhaps we should have partnerships with companies that have ingredients and groceries that can get in front of a young adult who is coming up with a whole long list of why they need to be alone on a Friday night. No one wants to be alone on a Friday night. That's they true. are, they just finding that they didn't necessarily find that they had the agency to actually create that experience. We also learned, by the way, that a lot of the other solutions were these large scale uh, young adult events. And we found that people actually reported higher levels of loneliness when they're finding themselves in a room of 50 or 100 or more people. They don't feel heard or seen. And it can actually lead to feeling more isolated than even if they were by themselves. So we also really focused on dinners that are about eight to 12 people in primarily in private homes, even in small private rooms of a restaurant, on a rooftop, in a park, anything where um, a young person can invite another person. And so then we also learned that we had to actually teach sometimes people how to make an invitation. And the technology that we created, which you've referenced, is just sort of like Airbnb. And it's kind of like Airbnb plus like Evite, right? Where we help people yeah. actually organize an event. And then there's the technology that allows them to say, oh, I can invite these 10 people who I've invited before, or I can invite these people with a plus one, or I'm just going to create an event. And anybody who is in my area who wants to RSVP can do so. Um, and I really strongly encouraging people to invite people they may not even know into their intimate dinners. And you can structure, the user can also structure how the dinners go, whether they're fully hosting them or everybody's paying for themselves or you're making a contribution. I, you know, I believe that there's some flexibility there. A hundred percent. I think that I really felt this in, in, in all of the work that I have done. And especially in this case, our job is to give um, honor and permission for people to take this ritual and make it their own. It is not prescriptive. It is personalizable, which is so important. No one wants to be told how they must do something. It actually takes away their agency. And that only is going to lead to more disconnection. I want people to feel like they literally have a place at the table. They can set the table. They can invite people. They can determine what is or how they want to relate to uh, traditional or, con or contemporary ritual who is at the table, who is important to you in this world. All of those things are so important. And a lot of the feedback that we have re received from young people, some of them, they use the words like adulting, like this is the <laughs> first time, right? It's the first time I bought a table. This is the first time I have set of matching dishes. This is the first time I got rid of my red solo cups and I'm actually amp taking it up a notch because it feels special. Yeah. And they say, Thank you for trusting me. Thank you for believing in me. These are not things that that are intuitive. That's you, you know, we mentioned design thinking in the beginning. I don't think we would have come up with the same solution if it was just, you know, some of us in a closed room. We actually really observed 
learned about the behavior of others, tested at ideas, and we continue to shift it really almost every week so that we can meet the continue, you know, the changing needs of young adults. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Elisa Klein to learn more about One Table. And I highly recommend you go there because there's so many amazing Shabbat's going on every week. Um, go to onetable.org on Twitter at one table Shabbat. And on Facebook, that page is also one table Shabbat. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight keys to unlocking a joyful life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, IndieBound and HarvestingHappiness.com Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. back talking about the value of human connectedness with my guest, Aliza Klein. She is the founder of One Table. And I want to mention um, again that One Table has gone virtual. So instead of um, hosting dinners in people's homes uh, in different states and countries around the world, they are offering um, these virtual dinner parties with would make new friends around the world. And it's called Shabbat Alone Together. So um, let's get back to the conversation, but know that there's been an update to One Table site after uh, the COVID-19 crisis began. Let's return to that conversation. Eliza, we were talking during the break about how this scales to different faiths, to different interests. I mean, you just happen to have it focused on Jewish tradition and Jewish religion, but it, it, this could be for any anything. Absolutely. First of all, really every faith tradition has a day of rest. It has built into it a moment where we can pause, be grateful for the blessings in our lives, and you know, really exhale, punctuating the week with this sort of regular sense of warmth and wonder. My sense is that without the ritual of the reminder, we we won't do it. We yeah. really, it's so easy for life to go by. And this is, you know, that we have seven days in the week because of this uh, tradition that comes straight literally from the first uh, chapter of Genesis. Um, and it is one of the things that couldn't be more ancient. And yet it is so unbelievably contemporary. Um, I would absolutely frame this as an ancient communal wellness practice. And I say communal on purpose because it's not necessarily the same as having a very personal meditative practice where we close our eyes and connect with ourselves and perhaps with the oneness. But really, this is that plus an interpersonal connection. Uh, and the fact that the ritual begins with a shared meal 
requires community. And so people throughout the world are, are looking for others and ways to connect. And this is an invitation. The invitation is open to everybody. We have found that that this particular ritual resonates with people, of course, you know, from every tradition and every background. Um, and I'll say that the rootedness in, in the kind of the ancient root gives people permission to do something in a way that is out of the ordinary. And that out of the ordinariness is also one of our sort of three core operating values. Those values are joy, hospitality, and otherness, really marking this time as sacred and special. And those are both very particular to the Jewish tradition and totally universal at the same time. And when we talk about the wellness practice of a, a Sabbath or any other ritualistic break, it's about, you know, taking oneself from the ordinary into an extraordinary state for a small period of time, right? To exactly, and I think that's what's really interesting. It you know transports us to this otherworldly place where we experience this euphoria and connection with others and whatever your faith may be to something higher than oneself, and that sacredness reinforces the neediness of one another in a positive way. Because need is not a negative word. We think of it as negative, but we do need each other. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I actually, you know, I, I was thinking about this in two different ways. Um, you know, the Sabbath is a little like a vacation. Yes. Uh, right. It's, it's an escape. <laughs> it's an escape from our daily life. But it's also like, you know, there, there's two different things. First of all, I, I just last week was in Costa Rica for the first time ever, where the, the motto is Pura Vida, which means pure life. But it's really just said to everybody in every interaction, like Pura Vida, Pura Vida. How are you doing? Pura Vida. And, and the, it's a, you know, I was there on vacation with my family. So to be sure, it was absolutely an exhale and a far cry from New York City. And at the same time, there was this joy and intensity of joy, like enjoy the moment you're living in right this moment. And when I remember I was coming back on Monday morning, heading into the office in New York City, I'm like, oh, this is not poor Vita. <laughs> and, then, and then I remembered, but you know what? Friday night's coming and yeah. I get to determine that that's going to be a little poor Vita for me and for my family. Like that, I, I get to decide that. And this is an invitation for us all to do that. And I, I really think we need the invitation. It's, we really need it, but we also need the invitation, which is the other, you know, this other core value of hospitality, which is literally encouraging people to make an invitation because, you know, the number one reason people come to the dinner, this isn't obvious, but it's because they were invited. Right. They were it's asked. <laughs> correct. Nothing, nothing feels better than being invited, but it's very hard and unusual to be the inviter. And so we spend a lot of time, we provide one-on-one -on -one coaching and support. And we have, um, literally we can help send groceries to your home, whatever we can do to just lower your risk and make it easier to put yourself out there and make, be the inviter, be the host so that we can have, as you mentioned, dinners, we've had dinners in more than 400 cities, We've had close to 30,000 dinners now for about 150,000 people. Wow. About each, yeah. And about each week, about 65% of people are coming back. So we continue to reach new people every week. And also this is, it feels so good that people want more. And that is 
absolutely part of our goal is to help build this kind of hospitality muscle memory, right? So that people have the skill now at this kind of transitional time of their lives and they can then continue to build on it so that, you know, you mentioned a friend in her 90s who is also suffering from this social isolation and loss. Um, How might we help someone have this ability to find and build community throughout their life? Well, she and I are going to be the old ladies. We're going to test drive it. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's what we'll have to call it. The old ladies Shabbat. That's right. Perfect. Perfect. You know, boobies break or something <laughs> like that. I don't know. <laughs> oh, my. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, going back to some of those statistics and how we, yeah. as I would say, as Americans and just as Westerners in general, we are the most underrested, sleep deficient, um, uh, playlist, not completely playlist, but you know what I'm trying to say. We're not playing enough yeah. Yeah. Um, group yeah. of people in the world. What's up with that? Yeah. You know? I think it is a whole lot easier to avoid interaction than to interact. Um, That's my sense. I I think also we have very little patience for um, being uncomfortable at this at this point in history. Um, well, and a lot of, we're uncomfortable enough. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, in other words, if someone disagrees, if you are, you're, if you know that going to be in a kind of some kind of community experience um, could be your family, could be a work thing, could be in a religious community, um, and you think you might disagree with somebody, people just won't go. Um, right. Where my you know, when I was growing up and certainly for my parents, there was an assumption that we would be willing to make compromises for the whole. Um, I was recently at a, um, a gathering at Facebook headquarters in California um, about social cohesion, where you know Facebook is trying to understand their role in community, uh, how it's falling apart, and can they possibly be a resource for bringing back together? And one of the speakers was Robert Putnam, right, the author of Bowling Alone. It's now 20 years since he wrote that book. And he talked about how we are now at the lowest point. We are at the same point in terms of social cohesion uh, or lack thereof as we were on the eve of the Civil War. Wow. I, I don't Yeah. Like at that point, we were willing to literally kill each other, right? So here we are where that's our tolerance for being with people who are different than we are or differently dealing with people who see the world differently. Um, And I think it's really incumbent upon us to figure out how do we build resilience so that we can get over this low point? What were the investments being made then in the early 1900s in terms of helping people form relationships? And what could we be doing now in 2020? Um, How do we use technology to bring people together instead of bringing them apart? How do we find customs and traditions that we can share Um, that unite us rather than divide us? And how do we just even provide people the resilience to breathe through discomfort so that we can get over this, you know, difficult time? Like, you know, please God, the, you know, the arc of history will continue to bend towards connection and justice, but it's really an uncomfortable time that we're living in. I think you're exactly right. I think so as I think so as well. I mean, we're both mothers, right? So I think about yeah. my children's experience and your children's experience and the world that they have inherited. And there's a lot of goodness, but there are a lot of challenges that you and I didn't have as kids. A hundred percent. I I don't recall my mother ever saying, put down the phone. I mean, she might have said, you know, 
hang up the phone. Right. <laughs> but it wasn't, it was only because I was talking to somebody, um, not because I was right, lost in in an app of some sort. I think that's exactly right. And and the question is, you know, what are the skills that I can help my daughters build up so that they don't have they feel the agency and feel less lonely? That was something that has come up in our own loneliness research. It's just that when people feel disconnected, I mentioned that that sort of scary experience of being in a large room full of people that you feel the most unseen. And sometimes at that moment, they also feel like they have no agency. They have no ability to make a difference. What can we do to reverse that? Um, and I really think that that is, a, you know, a part of, of, of what we want to do. Like I, I am someone who has given a lot of gifts by my parents. They were models of hospitality, of opening their doors, of welcoming people in, of being gracious to others. Uh, and I really feel like I mimic them. So what if you, if you didn't have parents who behaved that way, how can, how can we use technology to actually teach that behavior and to mimic that, right? Can we yes. provide people the language, the resources, the tools, um, we use a lot of humor and a lot of beauty. We care a lot about the aesthetics, about what we're introducing to feel proud of their ability to invite someone others. I have, I have this sweet um, story from, from a, a one table user who in one sentence said, big groups of people can be overwhelming and isolating. And then the next sentence said, I like that I have the choice to invite people close to me and in the spirit of Shabbat for my friends to bring their friends. Uh, and then finally, I also feel less lonely when I can make my home feel alive with people and human connections. Like people, I am very optimistic, right? We, we were just talking about how, what a mess our world is in. And, you know, I have even more data. <laughs> I could talk about how bad it is. But I'm also incredibly optimistic because I see that as soon as people feel like they have the ability to open up their doors and welcome people in, or if the one who has been welcomed in and how that felt now they know, and yeah. now they have the ability to keep doing it again and again. And that, uh, that fills me with optimism. Well, you know what they, it, it's that we get to have a, a taste of the sweetness of humanity. Yes. Just, to, I think that is exactly right. Just in that meal, the breaking, exactly. the breaking bread. And I, that is the power for me. That is what the power of one table is and why I was so drawn to it and to have you on the show, because it is illustrative of some medicine that we sorely are in need of. I could not agree more. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> perfect timing. I was going to say, Lisa Klein, <laughs> thank you for joining me on the show. To learn more about One Table, go to onetable.org. On Twitter, we're at One Table Shabbat, and you can also find One Table Shabbat on Facebook. Aliza Klein, thank you so much for spending some time with me. I'm going to update you on our pursuits. <laughs> My pleasure, Lisa. I would love to hear about it. Thank you so much. This has been a tremendous joy. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests, Rob Lawless and Aliza Klein, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day in safety and in joy. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere. From the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, 
Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.